From John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Great to see you guys. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 18. We didn't read the whole text, but we're going to work through the whole text. We read the first 14 verses. I want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live. Thanks for joining us. We've got about four more weeks or so. We'll be finished up with the gospel according to John. Can you believe it? And so that's where we're headed. We're headed to the finish line, and then we're going to talk about uh, how to hear the voice of God. We'll do a series on that coming up. We're really excited about that. Take a look at your sermon notes there. We're talking about the betrayal of Jesus. In fact, that's what John chapter 18 is all about. Look at your uh, intro there. In what should have been the most demeaning experience of his life, Jesus exhibits beauty and brilliance. Against a backdrop of betrayal by a friend. I'm doing a summary here of this whole chapter so you kind of know what the chapter is about. But against a backdrop of betrayal by a friend, who is the friend that betrayed him? Judas. Judas. Yeah, verses 1 through 3 in our text. Arrest and bound by the authorities. That's verses 4 through 14. Disowned by another friend. What friend was that? Peter. Verses 15 through 18 and verses 25 through 27. We're not going to talk much about that. We dealt with that this last Easter. You'll have to go online and listen to that uh, teaching on the disowning of Jesus by Peter, uh, denying of Jesus. And then attack, interrogation, false accusation, and sentenced to death. Verses 19 through 24, 28 through 40. 40. That's a summary of the chapter. Against this backdrop, Jesus' unshakable trust in the Father 
is both a model and a means to help us face life's hurts and injustices with the same trust in the same Father. Now, if you haven't ever experienced betrayal or false accusations, then you haven't lived very long. Or you've never had a family feud, or you've never gone through a divorce, or you've never been involved in ministry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yep, that's right. That's right. It's, it seems to be a part of life. So how to deal with the betrayal, with betrayal and false accusations? And Jesus is our model. There's, that's where we're headed. I'm going to give you some characteristics that I see in Jesus that we can, we can follow him in. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He's our model. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So how did he do that? Well, let me give you the first fill in the blank on your notes. So Jesus, our model, we first of all see in Jesus and what we want to have in our life when we're facing life's hurts and injustices or betrayal and false accusations is calmness. Calmness. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, words in John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer for us, he just finished up his prayer for us, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kendron, now keep in mind, this is the Passover feast time, and so they would uh, sacrifice about 200,000 lambs, and so this brook Kendron would be flowing with blood. And so they came across the brook Kendron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And this is what's fascinating about Jesus. I gave you a couple examples of this. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Luke 4, 42. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, not just alone, but also with his disciples. And so we must do the same if we want to have a calmness in our life as we face you know, life's hurts, and life's injustices. And, um, and in fact, I know that I have done good soul care in my quiet time with the Lord when I am experiencing calmness, rest, and peace. In fact, I, I, I just finished up a DB clip that will be out on Monday morning on our YouTube channel. It's called Soul Care. And I talk about that, about five minutes worth that you can listen to. So think about this. So when you spend time with the Father as Jesus is here, there's, there's got to be a calmness. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to deal with the hits and the hurts of life. You're not going to be able to navigate that. There's no way. And the only way you can get that calmness is to be in the very presence of God. And it should bring to you a calmness, a sense of security, a peace that goes beyond your understanding. So the tendency is when we get into conflict, relational conflict, what do we do? Fight or flight. Sympathetic nervous system kicks in. <laughs> That's where we go. 
And that's, don't, that's not where we want to go. So we've got to keep from going fight or flight. We've got to calm ourselves down so that we can respond. That takes us to the next one. This calmness should lead to clarity. So if we're not calm, we lose all clarity. Look at verses 3 through 4. So Judas brings a band of soldiers. So let me ask you this question. About how many soldiers do you think are represented here? How many have come here to arrest Jesus? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. How about 600? Did someone say 600? That's a bunch. That's a lot of soldiers. I mean, most of us think there's just a handful of people. No, there's a whole, whole crowd, a whole group. There's a massive army that showed up to arrest Jesus. Literally, the Greek here, the Greek word, which is a formal name for a troop of 600 Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. Then, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, do you think he has clarity about what's going on here? Absolutely. Came forward and said, whom do you seek? Now jump down to verses 10 and 11. Keep your Bibles open. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Hey, did you know my name's in the Bible? Malchus. How, how did you get your name in the Bible? Had my ear cut off. This is the only place where this guy's mentioned. I made the Bible. How's that? Got my ear cut off. And so Malchus, now why would, why would he put his name there? Because this isn't a legend. This is an eyewitness account. A lot of people will say, well, the Bible's legend. No, legends don't have this kind of detail. So if you were alive during that day, you could have gone and talked to that guy. Malchus, what happened? And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in, in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So there's your proof text for open carry right there. Arizona law, right there, open carry, proof text, Peter's packing heat, and we're not sure what other disciples were packing heat, but he just said, hey, it's not time to pull the sword, put it back in, in the sheath. By the way, this is really dumb of Peter to pull a sword on 600 soldiers with weapons. If you do that, you're going to die. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's insane. So that shows right here that Peter doesn't have any clarity. I'll take him on. And what's even crazier about this, he doesn't go for a soldier. He goes for a servant who probably didn't even have a weapon. And, this, and that servant would have had his head cut off, but he probably went like this, ducked, and Peter got his ear. Isn't that crazy? I'm telling you, if you don't have calmness when you're dealing with relational conflict, you're not going to have clarity, and you're going to cut some ears off. You're going to act foolish. And, and so I think it's important keep that in mind. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered Pilate. So Jesus' interaction with Pilate further on in the text. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus continues to have this clarity. He knows exactly what he's about. He knows why he's there. And so, I, and I think the big idea that Peter, or that Jesus wants us to understand in this story is that the battle is spiritual, not physical. So when you get, enter into conflict, the first thing you need to be thinking about is that, hey, you know what, this is more about something spiritual going on than physical going on. Otherwise, you'll become just like Peter. You're not going to have the clarity to be able to work through that. 
Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, now listen, it's important to understand. Behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil. What is the flesh and blood evil? How about this? Our sinful nature and the values of our society. That's the flesh and blood evil. So behind the scenes aggravating aggravating the flesh and blood evil is something that is not flesh and blood. It's demonic. Satan is what it's saying here, but his all of his demonic forces are working. And so here's the first thing you want to ask yourself when you enter into this relational conflict is like, what is the enemy trying to do here? Oftentimes we don't think about that later on after we've cut a few ears off. After we're out of, we've gone fight or flight and we have no clarity and then we respond in, in a wrong way. What is the enemy up to in this. And we did a whole series at the very beginning of the year. It was called Wholeness in a Broken World. And we talked about the high and low road. And a tendency is for us to go low in conflict. The low road is, is un- lies, unforgiveness, bitterness, broken relationships, and death. The high road is truth, forgiveness, love, healthy relationships, and life. This is what I've learned through the years, still learning it. Your response to conflict reveals what team you're working for. If you respond on the low road, you're not working for the team, Jesus. You're not, you're not part of his team at that point. Now, you can be a Christian, but you're doing more work for the, for the adversary than you are for anybody else. Just by your response, you don't want to become like the evil that is being done to you. That's natural for us. Fight or flight, become, they're going to get what they deserve. I'm coming after them. I'm going to attack them just as they attack me. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You've got to keep your head in the game. You've got to have that clarity. But the only way you can have that clarity is you've got to start with some calmness. And um, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now l- listen to me. There's a lot of evil on this planet And there's a lot of people that will come after you for your political views, for your spiritual views, for any number of views. And you've got to have calmness and clarity so that you can understand, you know what, there's a much deeper battle going on. It's a spiritual battle. And that's what Jesus is helping us to understand. Third thing is is calling. So calmness, clarity, Calling. This has to do with identity. Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now the word he is not actually there in the Greek. It was only placed there in the English to make sense of the statement. Because it actually, the word is I am. Now what's fascinating about this I am, it's the same word that was used in Exodus 3.14. Remember when Moses was out herding the sheep, sees this burning bush, it's not consumed, he goes over there to investigate it, God speaks to him, 
He says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. He says, I'm sending you to uh, lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. He's like, ah, who's, who is this? What, who should I say is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. Same words. So Jesus is identifying with that God who was speaking to Moses. And you see that statement. This is the, really the personal name of God. I am that I am, where we get the word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. I am that I am. And let me just give you a brief sentence of describing what that means. I mean, we could spend hours talking about that, I am. What does that mean? But let me just say this. I am the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, uncreated creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. That's powerful. And so he understood his calling. You think Jesus was intimidated in the least bit? Not at all. Now let's move this over to apply it to our lives as we deal with conflicts, and we need calmness, clarity. We need to understand our calling. And what's interesting is that we are children of that God, the great I am God. Do you understand that? If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are a child of the great I am. That's our calling. And that's why I like the verse 1 John 3, 1. Anybody know what 1 John 3, 1 says? Nice, excellent. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You hear, hear how overwhelmed he is? I mean, when you look at the Greek there, he's just like, he's overwhelmed with the reality, the fact, I'm a child of God. I really am. That's my calling. Now, if I'm a child of that God, the great I am God, there's no reason for me to ever be overwhelmed with worry, anxiety, bitterness, regret, envy, despair, hopelessness, or any unreasonable negative emotions. And yet we are. I'll admit it. It's because I've lost track. It's gospel amnesia. I've forgotten my calling. I've forgotten who I am or whose I am. You know, I belong to Him. See, our acceptance and identity in Christ is greater than any hardship or human rejection. You can become unbreakable. Now, you're going to take some hits, but it's not going to take you out. So you can become unbreakable, but also, check this out, you can become unoffendable. How many would like to become unoffendable? Show of hands. Some of you don't care, do you? Some of you didn't raise your hand. Okay, maybe you're already unoffendable. I got it. I doubt it. No, I want to become unoffendable. Somebody could cut me off on the freeway. Hmm, no big deal. I'm not going to chase him down and run him off the road. Like Nancy usually does. No, she's, she's a much better driver than I am. She's a much better driver. No, I mean, so how do, you, how do you respond to those kind of conflicts, difficulties, issues in your life? You can become unoffendable because of your calling. Here's the next one. So if you've got calmness, clarity, 
calling. You can have compassion. This is amazing. You can have compassion in the midst of conflict? (laughs) You see it in Jesus right here. Look at verse 8. So if you seek me, let these men go. You hear what Jesus is saying? If you seek me, let these men go. Now, right after he said that, Peter pulls a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Now, I can't tell you how encouraged I am that Jesus did not turn to the soldiers at this point and say, I've changed my mind, go ahead and take him. (laughs) I just said, you can go, guys. They're going to let you go, and you pull a sword, you knucklehead. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he has compassion on Peter. Even though Peter had been with him for three and a half years, should have been more mature than what he's demonstrating right here, and yet Jesus shows compassion. Peter, Peter, back off, dude. Put your sword back in the sheath. Come on, man. Let me walk you through the gospel one more time. Let me help you understand. You're freaking out here. You have no clarity because you have no calmness because you don't believe really what I'm about and what I'm going to do here. And so that's, that's all part of it. Compassion, and this is what we see in Jesus regularly, compassion looks beyond our faults and sees our need. Now imagine if you were able to do that in conflict, and this person is just like spewing ugliness and hatefulness and anger and animosity and attack and false accusations and all that, and you're able to go, I can see beyond their fault. I'm looking beyond their fault and seeing their need. Oh my goodness, they have a lot of hurt inside of them. Man, the enemy's working overtime in their life. See, that would be the right perspective. Man, alive. Man, I better start praying for this person because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're showing a lot of ugliness. So when you look at our, what we're saying and what we're doing, it displays you know, what team we're on, really, what team we're playing for, and it displays our heart. Our words and actions are a window into our heart. And Jesus is able to look beyond that fault exterior, not get hung up on it, and look and see that need. And so that's why, why we need to have calmness, clarity, calling, compassion. In fact, verse 11 says that Jesus even heals the ear of the high priest's servant. Well, that's what he deserves. He deserved to have his ear cut off. These guys are coming after me. No, that's not Jesus. He says, oh, here, I'm going to heal your ear. Isn't that amazing? This is what it says in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So, so someone that's operating there, you'd have to say, that's a pretty hurt person. They're pretty busted up. In contrast to that, here's what a healed person looks like. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How's that? How do I do that? As God in Christ forgave you. Isn't that incredible? Here's the next one, courage. So you got calmness, clarity, calling, compassion, and courage. Oh my goodness. You see phenomenal courage here with Jesus. Look at verses 19 through 24. The high priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. Why are you questioning me? 
I've spoken openly to the world. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is not cowering in the least bit, nor is he towering. There's no attitude of superiority or inferiority here. He squares off with them. I've been honest with you guys. In fact, why did you strike me? Do the research. Investigate. Look at my life is what he's saying. Look at the facts. Look at verses 33 through 37, he's talking with Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? This is, this is a pretty harsh statement. Are you, like he's actually saying, are you a puppet? Is someone pulling the strings here on you or is this something you've come up with? It's just coming from you. So he, didn't have, he doesn't have a problem speaking the truth. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Pilate's a little defensive. Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been, have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so, so you are king? And Jesus said, yep, that's right. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he's really, he's, he's very courageous here. And it tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. How many are familiar with that verse? It's a great verse, great memory verse. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of self-control or sound mind, clarity as you navigate this. Now, fight or flight. Every one of us fits in one of those two categories when it comes to conflict. We've got fighters and we've got flighters. My wife's a flighter. She flights. I tend to be a fighter. How many fighters do we have in the house? Let's say you're a fighter. Wow, we've got a lot of fighters here. I'm afraid. <laughs> because I'm right there with you. How about flighters? You tend to, f- you tend to flight, yeah. Not as many, see you don't even wanna, you're just like this. <laughs> the f- you're true to that, you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'm not gonna raise my hand all the way. In fact, I'm not even gonna raise my hand. That's passive aggression, by the way. Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly how you are. You're passive in your aggression. That's what a flighter is, and then I'm open in my aggression. So the tendency is that we either, you got people that are fighters that run to conflict and others that run from conflict, and they do conflict differently. And, but you don't want to do either one of those. You're not going to run and, well, I'm going to mix it up here. I'm going to get involved in that small group, and I'm going to stir things up. Well, don't do that, okay? That's not healthy. You got a chip on your shoulder, and then you don't just avoid it. I'm telling you, listen to me, you can be courageous as you face conflict. Conflict gives us greater opportunities for for maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but one another. But don't do the fight or flight, 
but be courageous. Face, face the issues that are at hand. Try to understand what God's wanting to do in this and in your life. And then be completely honest. That's the next word, candor, integrity, or honesty. You see that with Jesus, verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world, verse 37, I have come to bear witness of the truth. So here's, here's a healthy relationship. What are the two marks of a healthy relationship is truth and love. An unhealthy relationship will have all love and no truth or all truth and no love. So there should be that balance. And you see that wonderfully blended in the life of Jesus. Living a life of integrity means that there is no disparity between your private life and your public life, and therefore you don't have to worry about being found out. You're not always looking over your shoulder, and that's a great way to live, a life of integrity. And so living a life of integrity means there's no disparity between your private life or your public life. There's, and, and, and there's nothing more free, as you're living a life of integrity, there's nothing more free than to live your life, and this is what I always go back to, when I've been attacked, when I've been accused or falsely accused, when I've gone through the hurts of life, this is what I always go back to. The first thing I do is I examine my heart, and I, I go back to 1 Timothy 1.5. I, I ask myself these questions. Do I have a clear conscience, sincere faith, pure heart. A number of years ago when I was at a very unhealthy church situation, these guys were coming after me and I kept, I had to keep coming back and saying, wait a minute, between me and you, God, between me and you, because these guys were gaslighters. You know what a gaslighter is? People that will put it on you like it's your fault. No matter what you bring up, it's always your fault. And it's almost a little bit crazy making, but they would throw it back on you. And so I, I have to, to clear my head. I have to come back and say, do I have a clear conscience? Sincere faith, pure heart before you, God, based on your standards. Yeah, I think I do. I even asked my wife, here's what I'm working through. This is what I'm struggling with. Help me with this because this is crazy making right now. And I need to be able to navigate through this. And she helped me with that as I, as I worked through that. And so that's, that's important to keep in mind. So when someone's coming after you, you begin to ask yourself, Hey, do I have a clear conscience, sincere faith, pure heart based on God's standard? Might even want to get feedback from someone else, maybe a third party to come in there. So it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're not worried about being known or exposed, especially when you're living a life of integrity because you're not hiding anything and any blind spots. By the way, we all have blind spots. That's why you need to be a part of a small group or just get married. Your spouse will expose all of your blind spots. Oh, praise God, honey. Thank you for sharing that with me. My wife is really good at it. And I think I'm pretty good at it, too. But that's, that's why we do community. It's because we do have blind spots. And those blind spots will, will probably kill you, probably take you out. And so you're not even afraid of having those blind spots exposed because you already have been covered. Those blind spots have already been covered by the precious blood of Jesus if you're a Christian. So you can have people say, hey, I saw this in you and it doesn't look pretty. Uh, are you sure? Let me ask a couple more people. Yep, that's what he sees. Yep, 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 okay. Yep, I need to deal with that, don't I? Yeah, that's, that's hurtful, but you know what? Jesus' blood died for me and 
He's forgiven me. I'm going to bring it to him. He's going to take care of me. So this allows you to be approachable when people bring things to you that you need to hear and evaluate against God's word. So that's that candor. That's really healthy. And um, candor is about knowing the difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments, too. We live in a world today where there's a lot of assertions about people, about you know, situations and circumstances. You've got to know the difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. Dogmatic assertions are about opinions. Is that this guy's opinion? Or is this, is this factual? Now, nowadays, you don't even know the difference half the time. But we've got to be discerning as believers to be able to discern what's going on. And so when someone comes at you and begins to make these accusations against you, you need to be able to say, hey, you know what? Tell me when I, what I said or what I did hurt you or was abusive to you. Give me some facts. I want to know the specifics of that. I don't doubt you. I'm just wondering, when did I do that? Because I, I just want you to know that I would never want you to be abused or hurt or offended by anything I've ever said or done. I want us to have a good relationship. So let me just start there. Help me to understand that. That's a great way to respond. Sometimes people can't come up with the facts. And you know why? It's because it has, a, a, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with something in their past and maybe something you did triggered that. But you'll never be able to expose that past hurt if you come at them and you're very defensive. But you begin to ask them for, you know, they're making assertions or is this a true argument and it's based on facts. You know, it's crazy in our world today, there's a lot of this in the last, uh, last year or so. Remember all those mobs going into cities, destroying, and all the craziness with uh, unfund the police, defund the police, which is insane. That's just craziness. And uh, most of those mobs out there, when they had interviewed some of those people, those people were clueless about why they were even out there. And, and a lot of it was, if you look at mob mentality, it's, it's driven by emotion rather than facts. And that's our culture that we currently live in. It's crazy, so we gotta be objective, we gotta be discerning, we gotta stand up for truth, we gotta do that in love, and so Jesus gives us really great, great insight here, but guess what? You'll never be able to pull that off, apart from Jesus. <laughs> because it's supernatural. What I just said to you, that's supernatural. I don't see a lot of people doing that in our culture today. I don't see a lot of people doing that. I see, I've seen Christians do that. And so the only way that we, you can do that, so that's our model, Jesus is our means. So Jesus is our model in dealing with life's hurts and injustices, calmness, clarity, calling, compassion, courage, candor. But Jesus is our means. Look at verse, it's not on your notes actually, let me just read it to you, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So he says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this second part of this message, so Jesus as our means, we're going to learn from our text the greatest problem in the history of the world, the greatest solution in the history of the world, and the greatest kingdom 
in the history of the world. The greatest problem in the history of the world is sin. That's your next fill in the blank. And I'm getting the definition for sin and salvation, which is your next fill in the blank, from a man by the name of John Stott from his book, The Cross of Christ. I really liked the definition here. And so he says, sin is man substituting himself for God. So man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. So that's sin. Now, when we do that, and we have done that, and that's why we have the mess of suffering on this planet Earth, is that uh, we have no ground to stand on to stand on before a holy God. So because we're sinners, we have no ground to stand on before a holy God. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now think about this. Like I said, verse 3, band of 600 soldiers. These guys are battle-hardened imperial troops. And here is a meek, mild-mannered carpenter, rabbi, philosopher. He stands up and says, I am. And this entire imperial Roman troop is knocked flat on their backs. Now what that shows me, first and foremost, that's the power of Jesus. There's power in his name. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because there's power. I mean, he just levels them. And all he says is, I am, boom. They're down. So there's power. Always think there's power in the name of, of Jesus. Now, why do these guys, why are these guys leveled? Why are they knocked flat on their backs? Well, nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God. Everybody loses their footing. Let me give you an Old Testament example and a New Testament example. I could give you a whole lot of examples throughout the Scripture. Here's the Old Testament example, Isaiah 6. Isaiah encounters God and is undone. He encounters God in church. That's pretty incredible. He was shocked. In church, that's where he's supposed to encounter God. And you can encounter God anywhere. But in those days, that's, he, was, he went to the temple, he encountered God, he's undone, he's coming apart, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm devastated by this encounter with God. I have no ground to stand on before a holy, righteous God. New Testament example, Luke 5. Uh, remember Peter, Jesus tells Peter to throw the net on the other side. He brings up this amazing catch. And Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So think about this. You jump into a river with a current too strong for you, you're going to lose your footing. It's going to knock you down. If you try to stand with hurricane wind coming at you, you're going to lose your footing. If you're in a battle with an enemy too strong for you, you're going to be flattened out. You're going to lose your footing. In the presence of God, nobody can keep their footing. And here's what the Bible says. It goes into more detail about our condition before Christ. We are all sinners. We are all enemies of God, enemies of God, James 4, 4, and objects of his wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. Now, what's fascinating about this story, and I don't know if you noticed this, that everyone goes down except Jesus and those who are standing with Jesus. Everyone else goes down. So at the end of history, everyone will go down, lose their footing, except for Jesus and those who are standing with Jesus. Why is that? Look at the next point, the greatest solution in the history of the world, salvation. 
God substituting himself for man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Now, there's examples throughout this chapter 18. It, it just, when I begin to study through this, it just began to come after me. It was like, oh, this is so good. This is all about substitutionary atonement. It's absolutely beautiful. Let me give them to you. Verse 8. So if you seek me, let these men go. Literally, in the Greek, he's saying, forgive them. Substitutionary atonement. If you seek me, let these men go. Forgive them. Forgive them and take me. Now, it's an interesting note here is that when they would arrest someone for insurrection, they would also arrest their followers, but they do not arrest their followers. They let them go, and Jesus is taken in. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Cup? What is he talking about there? The cup is the just wrath of God against sinful man. Remember when Jesus was in the garden, and he cries out to the Father, sweating uh, drops of blood. And he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So what was that cup? And what, what is possible? That we could be reconciled to the Father by any other means, and it was not possible. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and I. That's why he says, I, I need to drink the, Father's, the, the cup that the Father has given me. Verse 14, this is phenomenal. Here's the guy that's probably not even you know, a believer, and Caiaphas, the high priest, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man would die for the people. That's substitutionary atonement. This guy's prophesying this. He's probably not even a believer. Look at verses 38 through 40. This is how the chapter ends. It's beautiful. And after he had said this, that is Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him. That's That's important. No fault in Jesus. Sinless son of God. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Notice what it says here. Now Barabbas was a robber. He was sinful. We're Barabbas. That's us. We're full of sin. Jesus took our place on the cross for each one of us. That's a beautiful picture. You are saved from the wrath of God, by the love of God, for the glory of God. There's a movie titled Man on Fire. Very violent movie, not for everyone, but it's about a hard-drinking, burned-out CIA operative, John Creasy, Denzel Washington, who has given up on life. Until his friend gets him a job as a bodyguard to a nine-year-old Pita Ramos, Dakota Fanning. Bit by bit, Creasy begins to reclaim his soul. But when Pita is kidnapped, Creasy's fiery rage is released. And he will stop at nothing to save her. Creasy makes a deal with the kidnappers. And it actually goes like this. He's on the phone with him. And he says, my life for her life, my life, 
in exchange for her life. You release her, you can take me. Substitutionary atonement. At the end of the movie, there's a very moving scene where Creasy Denzel Washington gives his life to the kidnappers in exchange for the freedom of the little girl who runs into the open arms and tear-filled eyes of her mom. It's a beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement. Absolutely amazing. So, our greatest problem is sin, greatest solution is salvation through Christ, and when we put our faith in Jesus, we become a part of the greatest kingdom in the history of the world, the kingdom of God. That's your last one right there. Verses 30, 33 through 37, we've already read these verses, but Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, he tells Pilate, I am a king. This, for, for this purpose I have come. Now, this is what you need to keep in mind. You gotta make a distinction between Jesus' first coming and second coming. You all know that he's coming again. Did you know that? Aren't you excited about that? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please, Lord. Come quickly, we're desperate to see you. But with his first coming, he's already come the first time, and with his first coming, he came to bear our judgment and set up his kingdom in our hearts because that's where it needs to begin, in our hearts, and then it becomes a part of our lives. It starts on the inside, works its way on the outside. In his second coming, he will come to bring judgment, to set up his kingdom on this earth forever and ever. See, that's, that's what this story is all about. This is what Jesus came to do. Now, how can I be a part of his kingdom? John chapter three, verses three and five, verse three says, you, he's talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God, or, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So how can I be born again? John three sixteen. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. What does that mean? You're going to have to drink the, the cup of the wrath of God, but Jesus did that for you, so you don't have to drink that. He did that for you. You know that cup of the wrath of God with your name on it? It's empty. Jesus drank that for you. If you don't allow him to drink that for you, you'll drink it yourself and you will perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Give your life to him. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all your sins and confess him as Savior and Lord. You could do that today if you've never done that before. Give your life to him. Oh my goodness. What are you waiting for? Live your life for him. Not a better life, not a greater life, not a greater kingdom on this planet. In fact, that's a kingdom that is unshakable. It tells us in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. Everyone and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. By the way, that's what's happening right now. There's a lot of things being shaken. I see a lot of Christians running crazy in a lot of different directions. They're being shaken. And it doesn't even com compare to the shaking that's going to go on when Jesus comes back. He's gonna bring judgment. So if you're being shaken now, what's gonna happen then? He says this, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No matter what you're going through, you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me make it practical here. If the king of the universe came and took our judgment for us, 
to first set up his kingdom in our hearts so that our judgment on judgment day we would stand before him without losing our footing. And if I really believe that, then, then I'll be able to not lose my footing now in my life. So this will keep you from losing your footing when someone criticizes you. Because God's love, forgiveness, acceptance of you is greater than any criticism you'll ever receive. And at the same time, gives you the ability to be honest about your shortcomings without condemnation. It frees us from the bondage of the opinions of others. Because I'm not going to lose my footing when I stand before him. I don't need to lose my footing now. Because I'm in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here's another illustration. This will also keep you from losing your footing when you're wronged because you know that God has forgiven you much more than you'll ever forgive anyone else. And you also know this, that one day God will settle the score and therefore keep you from being eaten up with bitterness and vengeance. You can let it go. Turn it over to him. Jesus is our model and means to our responding to life's hurts injustices. And just in case you forgot, God always wins. God always wins. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you're on the winning team. You're part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Next weekend, we're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, John chapter 19, and we will be on holy ground, and you're going to get pure gospel, and nothing can transform your life like the gospel of our Savior. That's what we're going to talk about next weekend. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you're new, we would love to meet you. If you need uh, prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you've got questions, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, we are thankful that Jesus is our model in how to respond to life's hurts and injustices, but most importantly, he is our means. And when we put our faith in the judge who took our judgment for us, This places us in his kingdom that can never be shaken. We are overwhelmed with love and gratitude that our acceptance and identity in Christ not only allows us to stand on judgment day, but also to stand now because what we have in Christ is greater than any hardship or human rejection that we will ever face. May these truths not only be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts, transforming our lives, all for your glory in Jesus' powerful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.